Well, let's go ahead and begin. We continue this morning in our series that we've entitled For the Love of God. And it's a series that we believe will have a very enormous impact upon our congregation if we allow God through the Holy Spirit and His Word to truly remind us or to discover for the very first time the incredible love that God has for us. It's not only a theological study of the love of God towards His people, His kids. It's also a practical testimony of my personal life. I believe that studying the love of God simply academically or theoretically alone is insufficient. The real power of the love of God is the power to transform and to change lives as we truly come into contact with the love that God has for us, understanding it, embracing it, praising Him for it, allowing the Spirit of God to melt our hardened hearts by understanding the love of God towards us and changing us from the individuals we once were in the world to the persons that God wants us and desires us to be. I think it's one of the most incredible subjects of all the Bible. I believe it is the foundation of the gospel for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. This is what moved Him. This is what truly uh, 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 allowed him to make such a great sacrifice on our behalf, and that is of his only begotten son, that we may now have eternal life, once, once again restored to that status of being a joint heir with Christ and allowing the love of God to flow in and through our hearts. I will tell you that it was the love of God that captured my heart when I was 16 years old. It was the love of God that allowed me to grow and to become the man that I am today. Of course, accompanied by His grace and His mercy and the Spirit and the Word. But understanding His love towards me was the foundation, the bedrock of it all. I believe Christ was the perfect embodiment of the love of God in every aspect and in every manner. And so this is also my testimony, my story as we go through this. And after I became a Christian at 16 years old, I wanted to share my Christian faith with everybody. Now, I did not grow up in a religious home. I went to CCD, that is Catechism of the Catholic Church, when I was younger. My mom was a non-practicing Catholic. I did not have a good uh, experience there. I got into a verbal confrontation with one of the nuns. She took away my car and I told her not to go to heaven. I told her to go to the other place, stormed out of the class and walked home. But I did have my car, my little toy car that I brought to CCD. I had no respect for religion. I had no respect for the church. Growing up, I was never instilled to have that type of respect uh, and that kind of... um, uh, perspective upon an institution such as it. Of course, I was completely wrong for interacting with her in such a way, but that was a demonstration of where my heart was, and that was when I was earlier on, and then I became 16, and that had fully developed into the little rebel that I once was. And then the love of God stopped me in my tracks so abruptly that it changed my life forever. 
And I wanted to share this with everybody because if it could do this for me, it could do this for anybody. And so I would share with anyone who would listen. Anyone. It didn't matter if it was somebody at the park. It didn't matter if it was somebody at the pool. It didn't matter if it was somebody at a store. It didn't matter if it was somebody at work or at school. Anybody that would listen to me, I wanted to tell them about Jesus and his love for them. And then I started to get a question in reply to my witnessing and sharing of my new faith in Jesus Christ. And it caused me to really consider and to think about how I could answer concisely and properly uh, to respond accurately to the question that is being posed before me. And they were trying to ascertain, what type of Christianity are you talking about? What does Christianity look like? What is Christianity all about? And it was an honest, sincere question. And it truly was a reflection of possibly their own personal experience with Christianity. You know, back in the 80s, many people went to church, even though they necessarily didn't believe or not. And, and you know, uh, churches were much more uh, uh, popular and filled back then at, this, at that time than they are now. And so when I started talking about Jesus and Christianity, they saw that something was radically different. Here's a 16-year-old kid who's, you know, was just one step away from the juvie hall. Now he's telling me about Jesus. And they try to figure out, what's this Christianity all about? What does it look like? What changed your life so dramatically? And some of them had gone to maybe a more liturgical church service, and that was their idea of Christianity. Some may have gone to a church service of a more charismatic nature, and that was their impression of Christianity. Some had never gone to church and therefore really had no idea of what Christianity looked like, and they were simply asking the question, what is this Christianity that you talk about? They would often ask me, you know, when did you all of a sudden become religious? And I didn't know any real theology at that time, but I did know this, that my pastor would often say that it's not religion, it's a relationship. And so that I would say that in response to them, not knowing at all what I was talking about. Oh, it's not religion, it's a relationship. If they were to ask another question, I was done. And then as I was reading through the Word of God, I stumbled on these verses that I believed answered the question precisely, concisely, and specifically. I believe that it summed up everything that I wanted to say to demonstrate that Christianity was far more than just a religion. It was a relationship. Now, you may be asking, well, what's the difference between this religion and relationship concept that you are speaking of? If you look at religion in its base form, and I'm not talking about its debased form, its base form, its most elementary principles, you will discover that the religion is often a system devised in which allows a man to try to uh, obtain and maintain a salvation from God. It's a system in which is exercised that, if exercised properly, will grant favor to that individual in the eyes of God. It's truly a system that allows a person in their own personal endeavors to reach up to God. But a relationship 
is based on the fact that it didn't require me to reach up to God, but it all began with God reaching down to me through the person of Jesus Christ. At the moment in time that that 16-year-old boy knelt on that porch and the biker put his arm around him and said, Jesus, we come to you now tonight and we ask for your forgiveness. It changed my life forever, the love of God. So to sum up Christianity, I found that Jesus had done it for me already. A man named a scribe came to Jesus. A scribe was one that was in charge of writing the manuscripts of the Old Testament, making copies of copies, and to allow those copies then to go forward and be used in various synagogues around Israel and possibly around the world if you had enough money to purchase one. We know from Acts the eunuch came to purchase a copy of the scroll of Isaiah on behalf of the queen of Ethiopia. So it was a very expensive endeavor, but these scribes painstakingly each and every day would copy verbatim the Word of God from one complete manuscript to the next one. Of course, they didn't have printing presses or photocopy machines or printers of any way, shape, or form, so everything was done by hand. Before the scribe could begin the process, he had to ceremonially cleanse himself in a certain way that took a long period of time. If the scribe were to have make a, made a mistake in his scribing of the Old Testament, he needed to start over again, not from the sentence in which he made the mistake, but from the beginning of the entire book. Can you imagine going through the Psalms and getting 149 of them right, and then in Psalm 150 you blow it, and you got to start all over again? You know, what an endeavor. But when you write out the Word of God, you have a tendency to look at the words very closely, don't you? You have a tendency to remember it more thoroughly than if you were just to simply read it and maybe even recite it. Writing something out over and over and over again, and take it from me, I am an expert at writing things over and over and over again. Many a days I spent my evenings at school writing sentences over and over and over again, and I'll just leave it at that. But you, by the end of it all, you certainly remember that in which you wrote. So this scribe comes to Jesus after witnessing and listening to him answer questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees were leveling against him. And seeing that Jesus was answering their questions so thoroughly and accurately and specifically, he himself start, desires to answer, ask Jesus a question himself. And I can only imagine that it is based upon the fact that after writing the Word of God out as many times as he possibly has had, he started to see something within it. I believe the scribe here was sincere in his question. For he watched Jesus answer a question about taxation, rendering unto Caesar what was Caesar's. Scribe thought that was consistent with what the Old Testament had stated. 
Then it came to the fact of the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees were much more naturalistic and they did not believe or hold to supernatural principles and therefore they disagreed with the resurrection. And Jesus answered that question thoroughly and the scribe apparently sees his answer and hears his answer, I should say, agrees with it and says, you know what, I'm going to ask him a question now. It was a legitimate question. It is a question that I believe in the answering of Jesus, he sums up for us the whole heart of Christianity in only the manner and way Jesus could. And as we begin, we start here in verse 28, the scribe now approaches Jesus, and one of the scribes came up, heard him disputing with one another, seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? This was a common question in Judaism. The Jewish rabbis saw the extent of the Old Testament law. The law is written between the books of Genesis and the books of Deuteronomy. And within those five books, known as the Pentateuch or the Torah, contained the law, which of course is summed up in the Ten Commandments and then expounded on upon by God in further passages after the giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, when all was said and done, there came out to be about 636 laws that needed to be observed by an individual there in Israel. And you can imagine how difficult that would have been to try to adhere to so many different laws, knowing that you had to hold them perfectly to be acceptable to God. And if imperfection was found, and of course it always was, then a sacrifice, an offering had to be given on behalf of the individual to cleanse them of their impurity before God for not keeping the law. And of course, James gives us illumination on this, and he says if they were to break one rule of the 636, then they would have technically broken all of the law. So this was a, uh, an endeavor that could not be ever perfectly accomplished by an individual. That was the purpose of it. The purpose of it was not to perfect an individual. The purpose of it was to show the imperfection of the individual and their need for a Savior. That's what Paul argues in the book of Galatians. That being said, the scribes try to consolidate, they try to sum up these 636 different laws in some manner, in way, shape, or form that would allow an individual to handle them more thoroughly and properly. When the scribe here asks in the Greek, what is, which is the most important he is basically saying, which of the laws has greater value than the others? Basically, he's asking, which law is more weightier than the others? Now, you may say, well, why is he asking that question? Let me explain to you why. 
the religious leaders started compiling what is simply a commentary of their time. You may say, well, what's a commentary? A commentary is just that. It is a written document commenting on the scriptures, allowing you to understand historical background, interpretation, and application based upon some of the most keen and intellectual minds of the day. The commentary that they compiled was a series of books called the Talmud. And it was their endeavor to try to explain the 636 different laws of the Bible and how they should be applied and which ones are more weightier than others. So again, the Jewish individual is coming right, the scribe is coming right from his background, right from his perception, and he's saying, now which of the commandments are more weightier than others? Which are the most important? When they try to bring the commandments to a place that could be more readily uh, uh, available and approachable to the lay people of the day. They debated first and foremost if there were 636 or 613. Makes a big difference, doesn't it? Still too many to remember altogether. If they settled on the number 613, then they would say that there are 365 negative laws. Just as if there is 365 days in a solar calendar year. They would then say there are 248 that are positive commandments, and they correspond to the number of the members of a man's body. They summed up that a man or woman is compelled of 248 different members within their body. Well, you think that's going to be helpful, but you're like, what? It's not helpful at all. You know, when we, when you go to Washington, D.C. and you see the Supreme Court and you read all the filings and writings of the Supreme Court over the centuries of the history of the United States of America, please understand you see these volumes of records and yet they are simply trying to articulate and interpret the Constitution of the United States of America, right? Same precedent here. The Talmud was immense. The Talmud then basically, as they were working their way through the Old Testament, concluded that David had reduced it to 11 principles. And so some held to those 11 principles as being foundational. But then they discovered that Isaiah summed it up to 6, Micah to 3, and then Isaiah again possibly to 2, and then Amos to 1, And again, they were just simply trying to get a handle on this immense amount of information and the the numerous amount of the laws that were given by God to mankind. And so now this scribe comes to Jesus after hearing him answer so thoroughly to these other questions. Remember, his whole life was dedicated and devoted to copying the Scriptures. And him thinking in this regard, okay, David says 11, Isaiah says 6, Micah says 3, Amos says 1. Some say, you know, 365 and 248. Okay, Jesus, finally, what is the most important commandment of all? As one wrote, Dr. William MacDonald, he said, he was really asking for a concise statement 
of the chief aim of man's existence. And so Jesus answered him. Listen to what he says in verse 29. And Jesus answered, The Lord, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Boiling it down, summoning up for this scribe this answer. While they believed all were binding, they assumed there was a distinction between a weightier or lighter statutes of the attempt to sum up the whole of the law in a single unifying command. When they looked at the laws of God, they would weigh them accordingly to find out the weightier ones from the lighter ones. As the rabbis divided them up, the light and heavy commandments according to three very cri- uh, varying criteria. Number one, how severe was the penalty for the failing to obey them? How great or little the reward for obeying them? And how easy or difficult they were to fulfill? This was the three-step criteria that they came to to identify the weightier ones from the lighter ones. And though they knew all of them were binding, and they knew that all of them were important, they were continuously looking for a methodology to sum it all up, to give it to us straight and simply, a unifying command that would bring them all under one umbrella. And Jesus tells them what this unifying command is, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. Now, as we proceed, let us understand that Jesus was not making this up as he went. He's actually quoting the Old Testament itself. For this is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates." This is the word of the Lord that Jesus is now telling this scribe is the summation of everything that he is inquiring of. If you want to sum it all up, this is how it begins. You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The scribe would have been fully familiar with what Jesus was quoting. The scribe would have understood perfectly and responds accordingly, as we'll see in just a minute. But one wrote, he says, this means that man's first obligation is to love God with the totality of his being. 
As it has been pointed out, the heart speaks of an emotional nature, the soul of a volatile nature, and the mind of an intellectual nature, and the strength of the physical nature. And this represented for the Jewish mind and our, heart, our minds today a totality of an individual. When it comes to the control center of our, our minds and hearts, love should be the emotional guideline in our interaction with God and, of course, as we'll see in a moment, our interaction with others. It should be the governing command, the governing drive that we qualify all of our interaction with. If that interaction's to God, that that interaction be qualified by the love that we have for God. If it's interacting with our neighbor, then it should be governed by the love that we have for our neighbor due to the fact that we love God with our entire being. When he speaks of the soul, he is speaking of the self-consciousness of the individual. That our individual self-consciousness is aware of the love of God for us, has responded in kind to the love of God that he has for us, and now we walk through this world in the understanding of that love for us. It is a a constant conscious awareness that we have that God loves us and that we love God. The best way I could sum it up, let me finish first. When it comes to our mind, our intellectual capacity, our thought capacity also must be governed by the love of God that I have and that He has for me. And of course, rounding it all out, our strength indicating our physical or bodily powers, meaning that which I do. And let us notice the words with and all. Again, I will argue that some of the smallest words of the Bible are the most troubling to me. Because here it says with and all, with and all, with and all. Does it sound to you as if God is satisfied by just having a portion of you? a portion of your affections, a portion of your love. He wants it all. He wants every bit of it. That's where it starts. That's where it begins. And you say, well, how can I remember this? Well, think about it. Paul brought this to our attention, that the relationship is illustrated in the marriage between a husband and a wife. When I was driving to my wedding... 24 years ago, I was thinking to myself, this is it. My single life is over. My fun, my friends, my endeavors. No, I'm kidding. I realized that there was a change about to take place. It was a change that I welcomed immensely. It's a change that I desired wholeheartedly. But I knew that once I had committed myself before God and those individuals gathered there in the church, once I committed myself to my wife, I knew that my life was going to change forever. That my heart now would be governed emotionally by the love that I have for her, right? My mind would be so consciously, I'm sorry, my soul would be consciously aware of the fact that I was married now. My mind would consider and, re- and rationalize things based on the fact that I am now married rather than single. 
I just can't run out and buy the ninja that I did, you know, without consulting someone else. Well, I could, but I'd also end up sleeping on the couch that night. But then when it came to my physical body, even that changes in a marriage relationship where I understand now that I am part of someone else and she is part of me and we are one in the Lord before the Lord. And so now everything has changed. This is the love that God speaks of. An understanding that everything has changed now that you've entered into a relationship with him based on love. And we're going to expound on this more as we continue on in our series. Now this begins the summation for this scribe. This begins the uh, answering of the scribe's question, but Jesus is not finished, of course. He then adds a second principle to it. It was common in Jewish culture to add principles together that were linked by a common word, and undoubtedly, as we find here in just a moment, that common word is love. As we will see here in verse 13, Uh, 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what he says. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now this is interesting. Jesus is saying that these two principles in which he has just brought to the forefront have always been there. They weren't hidden. This was God's intention and desire from the very beginning. Jesus here, again, when he states this as the second point of this great command, he is quoting Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against your sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So now Jesus is summing it all up for him. And he's connecting these words love together to show the continuity of these two verses. But then he makes this statement that I want all of us to notice here. There is no other commandment greater than these. And he's saying it in a very unique way. In the original language, he's saying it's always been there. But have you missed it? He's saying that when I called Abraham out, I desired that you would love me as your God. When I raised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I fulfilled my promises to them, it was always in hopes that you would love me. When I drew you out of Egypt through the hand of Moses, it was in hopes that you would love me as your God. As I established you in your own land, it was in hopes that you would love me from this point forward. It had always been there. Because there are no greater commands than these. And as a result, Jesus now summed up Christianity in a way that was so brilliant, it could only be uh, repeated by others Uh, to be effective in the communication of what Christianity is. Christianity is a relationship with God based on love. The words of Jesus settle this fact superbly and supremely. 
The law that governs us in our Christianity today is the royal law of love, James says. Love is everything. It is the foundation of our Christian faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that one who follows Christ loves God with their whole being. That doesn't happen all at one time. That's the objective. That's the goal. That's the mark in which the benchmark in which we are reaching towards. But we grow in our faith. We grow in our love relationship with God. It's, we are works in progress. We haven't all just simply arrived and one day we've just decided. Now, some love quicker than others. Jesus says, one who is forgiven much loves much. I believe that applied to me. I believe the reason that I embraced Christ in the manner in which I personally did was because I knew the ramifications of the forgiveness in which he had granted me. But as Jesus is talking about to the scribe here and informing him, and we are going to be talking about loving our neighbors as ourselves greatly as time goes on in our series, especially when we look at Luke's account of this interaction... I simply want to demonstrate for you this morning that this has always been the foundation of the relationship with God and his people. Notice how the scribe replies. And the scribe said to him, verse 32, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no others beside him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one neighbors as oneself is much more than the whole of burnt offerings and sacrifices. His reply is the key to understanding why Jesus said what he said. Please don't miss this. He, first of all, agrees with Jesus. Some believe that he was feeling superior to Jesus as a teacher. He being a scribe, Jesus just being this itinerant preacher going from town to town, that he was demonstrating a superiority, agreeing with what Jesus had said. I disagree with that. I, I think there's an assumption made to draw that conclusion. I understand where they come from to state that, but I don't think that's what he's saying here. And I'll tell you why It's because of what he says at the very end. That is the scribe, I should say, what he says at the very end of this reply. Or he was simply agreeing with Jesus because he has seen it himself, which this is what I hold to. I believe he's seen it already. And he indicates that he has seen it already by the words in which he uses here in our text. He sees that this has been the true foundation of their relationship with God, and yet it has been covered over and it has been stored by other things. Other things have become the priority when it came to the love of God that was you know, deprioritized to a place of obscurity, most likely in the hearts and the minds of the people. But I believe that those painstaking hours that that scribe took in which he wrote and copied and wrote and copied and wrote and copied and copied and wrote, 
He began to see something as he came to certain passages of the Scripture concerning God's heart in the light of sacrifices and in offerings. To show that there was a heart that God desired behind it all. It wasn't just the actions of the offering that satisfied and settled God. An individual could come and to offer a sacrifice unto him and he still know that their hearts are not right. Jesus said it this way, your, your mouth draw close to me, but your hearts are far from me, he said. Now watch with me, if you will. I think you will find this fascinating. I know I did, and I hope you do also. Because I believe that the scribe started seeing a pattern of what God truly wanted. Notice this with me. As we come to 1 Samuel 15, 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. What is he saying here? God's saying, I don't want the sacrifices. I want you to obey and listen to me. Yes, you can cover your sins that you have committed through the sacrifices, but I wish wholeheartedly, first and foremost, that you would obey and listen to me. But that's not the only place. For Hosea 6.6. 6. For God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I rather that you love me I rather that you know me, that's the word knowledge there, than bring simple sacrifices unto me. The sacrifices were a means to an end to cleanse them and to cover their sins for a momentary period of time if they had sinned, but God's first and foremost uh, desire was that they love him and have a relationship with him. But Micah, look what Micah says. This is amazing to me. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Is this what God desires? No. Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. These are the three that the Talmud brings out, that Micah brings out for us but the heart of God. Do justly towards one another. Live kindly with one another. Walk humbly with me before me. And then, of course, the psalmist, even David, caught on to this. In Psalm 46 through 8, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering, notice the same thing, and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, God says. I delighted to do your will 
oh my God, your law is where? In my hearts. This is what God desired from the very beginning. And as that scribe was writing these verses and copying these verses, he saw, as he says here very eloquently, here in verse um, 33, he says, uh, and to love him with all your heart, with all your uh, understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. The exact words that are used within all of these Old Testament examples. Jesus says, I was writing them. I, I saw that you desired us to obey rather than to offer, to love you and to know you rather than to offer, to do justly and to love kindness and walk humbly with you rather than to offer up these sacrifices, and to delight in your will, Lord, and have your law written on our hearts from the very beginning. And often when people subject themselves to a religion rather than a relationship, they are offering, they're oftentimes focusing on the burnt offering and the sacrifices rather than the love of God and their love for Him. They're hoping that performing another ritual of some sort will wash them clean and bring them back into right standing with God. But God says, I want you to love me with all of your heart from the very beginning. I want you to know me in a relationship way. And Jesus in verse 34 said, And when he saw that he had answered wisely, to him he said, You are not far from the kingdom of God. What did Jesus mean by that when he said it? Warren Worsby gives a fantastic summation of what Jesus meant by saying, You are not far from the kingdom of God. What does it mean when a person is not far from the kingdom of God, he states? It means that he or she is facing the truth honestly and is not interested in defending a party line or even a personal prejudice in which they carry. It means the person is testing his or her faith by what the word of God says and not by what some religious group demands. People close to the kingdom have the courage to stand up for what is true, even if they lose some friends and make some new enemies. The scribe saying this was contradicting to everything that the Jewish leadership was emphasizing. And Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So C.H. Spurgeon had a way of saying things, didn't he? C.H. Spurgeon said, we must give our Lord our love or that love will go somewhere else. We are so created that we must love something or others. If If the ever blessed one does not win our love, he states, the world, the flesh, or the devil will gain it in its entirety. But how do you come to love God in such a way? That is a good question. In fact, it's again answered in what Jesus had said. Some of you may have felt that I skipped over too quickly and I didn't address the Shema of the the Jewish faith. And that is found in verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is called the Shema. It means hear in Hebrew. 
And as a result, the Jewish people would say this when they get up in the middle of the day and when they go to bed. However, though, some have reduced it to the understanding that it is simply acknowledging that God is monotheistic, individual in character and nature, and there is no other God before him. Absolutely true. But when a Jewish person recited this, what they were saying is that I understand that God has revealed himself to me. I know who he is. There is one God and there is no other God before him. They're saying in essence, I know God. I know the one true God because God has revealed himself to us. Of course, the only way that we can know God is if God were to have revealed himself to us, which he did through his word. We can seek God all we wanted, he said in the Old Testament. You're not going to find him. It's God seeking us that is the determinate factor. That being said, let us notice here the one who is making this statement. If you really want to fall in love with God, you need to know God. And if I can only know God based on the fact that he reveals himself to me, think of the one who is making the statement, Jesus Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. You want to know the God in whom you serve? See me. That's what he was saying to this scribe. I believe that the more we get to know God, the more we will fall in love with God. Because we will respond to the love that he has for us by us loving him. For we love him because he first loved us. And he demonstrated that love by giving his only begotten son for God so loved the world and he gave his only begotten son. But let us not leave before recognizing this one last thing. In these two commands in which Jesus is stating that are the greatest of all, that have been there from eternity past to eternity future, I'm convinced that the heart of Christianity is that we would love God and walk with him to a place and a point where we love him so much that everything in this world pales in comparison. But notice this, if you will. God says there's an access to everyone's life. And that access must be pivoted upon God. There's an access that keeps us stable in life, and that is our access with Him. Before we can love our neighbors as ourselves, it's not necessary that we learn to love ourselves more thoroughly. Jesus took it as a, a, a given that we all love each other sufficiently enough. And I'm talking about a selfish, self-centered love. That we prioritize ourself above everybody else around us. That's what I am referring to. But he is saying here that if you want to have perfected relationships, and I mean that in the sense of perfected in God's standard of having relationships, it must be first predicated on our relationship with God. See, I believe that if our access with God is correct, then our access with everybody else is correct. When Christians come to me and they're having marital difficulties, I often begin with their relationship with God first and then see if it translates to the symptoms that they're having within their marriage. Because once they studying, you know, and get the access right once again with God, the access with others begins to fix itself. 
And so we are struggling so desperately in this nation because we are such a relationship-centered culture and society today, which is a wonderful thing. God created us to be relational. But if we separate ourselves from God, we are separating ourselves from the access that keeps us in line with others and allows us to have the relationship with others that we so choose to have. If we create that access upon ourselves, guess what? We become self-centered in our relationships. And let me ask you a question. If you have a society, let's say hypothetically, compiled of self-centered, selfish self-loving people, how dynamic are their relationship with others going to be when everybody is trying to serve themselves? It's going to be pretty weak, isn't it? That's the whole essence of it. To have a healthy relationship with another person, it must be built on self-sacrifice and selflessness. It must be built with having that access as a Christian with God properly established and then having our access with one another properly established. And we're going to flesh all of this out in the next weeks to come. But I remember that person asking me in my journey with the Lord, my personal experience, what is the Christianity that you speak of? He said it in just that way. I believe it was condescending. And I was able to say, say to him, the Christianity that I speak of is a Christianity that loves the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength and loves thy neighbor as themselves. For the love of God, that's the heart of Christianity. 